Hi, everybody. Hope you're doing well, having a great day from wherever it is that you are listening to my voice. I hope you get a chance to move your body today. Chances are you're sitting right now, but as soon as you're done sitting, get up. Do some jumping jacks. Get in the ocean. I promise it will make your day better. Way back in episode 25, I sat down with the former editor of Surfer Magazine, Steve Hawk. And after the podcast, Steve offered to put me in touch with his friend, Dr. Kevin Jaudis. Kevin is a, an expert in antibiotics and superbugs. And in the, the conversation that Kevin and I had, we went deep into the state of, of superbugs, which is quite frightening, but something to be educated about. Kevin is a surfer. Uh, he has quite a resume. He has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Texas A&M University and a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of California, Los Angeles. Kevin is the CEO of Dice Molecules. He also serves as the founder and principal of Cloudbreak Consulting and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board at California Institute for Biomedical Research. And previously, he was the founder and chief security officer at Sidera Therapeutics. So um, it was very nice of this guy to take the time to sit down. We had a, a great conversation, a ton of laughs. He's also a surfer, so we were able to connect on that level. Kevin has a great TED Talk that I will link to under his bio on my website, kyle.surf. The talk is titled, Life in the Post-Antibiotic Era is Going to Suck. As you might imagine, it's an inspiring presentation. Big thank you to Blair for donating to the podcast today. High five, Blair. If you're out there listening to this, I really appreciate it. For those of you who don't know, the way that this podcast is possible is through listeners like you donating a few bucks a month. That's what allows me to keep it going. And for any of you who donate, even just a few bucks, it will enter you into a raffle automatically where I give away gear from my surf sponsors, including Patagonia Provisions, RPM Fitness, Sector 9 Skateboards. So you can donate a few bucks and you can have a skateboard sent to your door. And if you can't donate, I'm now an Amazon affiliate. So... If you buy shit on Amazon, go to my website first, click the Amazon link, bookmark it, and then whenever you buy anything on Amazon from this point forward, I will get 5 to 8% of that at no charge to you. So it's an easy way to support my work uh, without any cost to you. So once again, kyle.surf. All right. Without further preamble, please welcome Dr. Kevin Jaudis. And get out there in the ocean today. What are you doing? Why are you still sitting around? Get up. Jumping jacks. All right, guys. Enjoy. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. Standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, Steve's a good guy. He's a really good guy. He's, he's so unpretentious. I love that about him. 
He's so funny. He got, uh, so Washburn dragged him out to Mavs today. Oh, he did? Whoa. And he got a notch. Yeah. And he was super pumped. He's been trying to get me to go out there and do it. And uh, so I have, I've been out there twice. I've never actually. a little closer. Okay. There you go. I've never actually gotten a wave, but um, one day. It's quite an arena. It's quite the scene. But when Washburn is on his, you know, dragging the newbies campaign out. Yeah. He, uh. It's very typically like just barely Mavs, right? right? So there's a lot of sleigh rides and then the rules have to be explained about, you know, it's not a notch if it's a sleigh ride. And <laughs> well, uh, Washburn's, man, that guy has tenacity. He just is yeah, out I mean, there every time. He's, he's surfed out there significantly more times than pretty much anyone else that I can think oh, of. I, yeah, I think so. Probably, I mean, from what I know, Grant and uh, Doc... <clears throat> at least in the old days and still grant these days but yeah i used to live on ocean beach in uh the mid 90s and so you know it was like doc's crew was down at terrible right and that was grant and edwin and all these kind of legendary guys yep. right and then when mavs broke open which i guess was sort of the foo winner you know when people i think got is that 97 94 96, 94 okay. <clears throat> yeah foo foo died like December 20th of 94, which I remember because that whole week of surf beforehand. Have you ever read um, Wash, uh, sorry, not Washburn, Warshaw's book, uh, Mavericks? I've seen it before. I, I yeah. haven't done the whole it's read actually, through. <clears throat> it's an interesting book in terms of being structured. He structures it around that week. And it's like, you know, he tells these stories of, you know, day one of that week when the swell started hitting and who surfed it and what happened. That was Jay's day. Um, and then the day that he had the big wipeout. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of iron cross, you know, right. Uh, and then he goes to a chapter of, well, this is some history from the fifties of, you know, Dickie cross and these guys. And he's anyway, a good storyteller. He's a really good storyteller. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's difficult in those flurries of swells to document what really happens because mm-hmm. as a surfer, if there's five days in a row of Mavericks days, yeah. You, it's difficult to remember the details about every day, yeah. especially because you have these these crazy adrenaline dumps every day, and then you're going to go in, probably have a few beers at night, right, and right. then at the end of it, it's just this flurry, and without someone like Matt Warshaw, right. none of the details are really captured. No, I know, and he's not surfing it, so he's kind of at a distance, which I think is helpful. Right? Absolutely. So how long have you been surfing Mavs? About five years and three years more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are those barriers to entry uh, surfing big waves. One of them is having all the equipment. Yeah. Right? A, a lot of it um, is having multiple big wave boards, investing in multiple big wave boards, the leashes, the vests. There's a lot of equipment that uh, you need to really get into those 30, 40 foot days right that you don't need if you're gonna go out to ocean beach on a big day right you yeah know? or you're gonna go to mavs and cherry pick the low end of the scale right? exactly yeah and if you want to do it res- and if you want to do it responsibly too yeah i mean that, that was for me my my goal was that look i'm gonna if i want to really do this i want to do it right and be able to hold my breath for a long time um and it that took an investment as well i did a a big wave um training course really? um, or it was a, it's a breath holding course okay. um, where they put you in different situations and teach you how to hold your breath for a really long time um in stressful situations which is a valuable life skill 
<laughs> to tell That's you that. Kind of a valuable skill anywhere in Northern California, but certainly I would think at Mavericks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's fun. It's It's been a, a, a really fun journey for me to um, also have the podcast where I can interview and, and have conversations with people who are a lot more experienced than I am. Mm-hmm. I feel that this winter I have taken a different approach to surfing big waves as a result of some of these conversations that I've had with the older guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when you get into big waves initially, you're so psyched and everything you want to do is focused on big waves and it's, it becomes this kind of obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, but that rarely is um, good for the long game, you know? Awesome. And uh, I remember, you know, I've, I've, Greg Long told me something once. He said, you know, big wave days wiping out um, is kind of like losing a life in a video game, right? Mm-hmm. And you can picture, the, let's say you have maybe four or five lives in this video game. And even if you're not getting injured, if you take a really bad wipeout, yeah. it just destroys your mojo for the next round, right? Yeah, so yeah. To, to go at it slowly and thoughtfully... Um, is gonna it's gonna behoove you in the end so i think that this year i've actually i I didn't like i I don't think that i was one of the standout guys this winter i got i caught bigger waves last winter Mm -hmm. right but i felt like i did it in a responsible way um and that i'm still really interested in it and i'm Mm -hmm. still kind of just getting into it um and developing my skills rather than just like getting in getting in getting in, you know taking the wipe out of my life and then being like fuck this i have no interest which is what (laughs) happens to a lot of people right 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 so um yeah it's it's interesting big wave surfers fascinating creatures it's a really it's a really interesting crew so i grew up in texas and so for me it's been this slow and delayed entry into bigger waves right and when i lived at ob that was like a crash course you know like gang and uh but i experienced very clearly that that thing that you're talking about on a much grander scale where if i went at the beginning of the winter and i paced myself you know like the first chunky but kind of shitty swell in september you know if i paced myself and tried not to do stupid things, then I would be better all winter. It's like building up your confidence and your skill and your strength gradually, right? But one serious, you know, gnarly hold down where you come up seeing stars or, you know, you break your board, whatever, then it's just kind of like... Yeah, absolutely. And and I've talked to enough guys now who have had near-death experiences, uh, and I have no interest in that. Yeah. I, I just, I, I get it. I, I get yeah. that it gives you this whole new perspective on right. life. Right. And you start appreciating the little things more and you realize how precious and fragile it is. But, uh, yeah, you know, I could just, like, take little mushrooms and go out in nature and totally. experience yeah. that. Or I cross the street when you're high. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Oh, right. <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily need to come that close to meeting my maker. <laughs> to appreciate the little things in life. No, I know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I've been scared, but I never thought I was going to die. I can't imagine, well, you know, like what Shane went through the day that he, you know, nearly died. Yeah. He was actually staying at Hawk's place that night, so I got this weird call from Steve the next day, like, whoa, Shane really got spooked. And I think not long after that, he had the idea for the inflatable vest, right? Yeah. But his initial reaction was, fuck this. 
right? I have two small kids. This is stupid. Like I'm done. Yeah. Which is, which is a very logical response to have. Absolutely. Yeah. As a, as a human, I mean, that is the the responsible thing to do. Yeah. The times I've been at Mavericks, the two times I paddled out there, both times I've had this incredible, I could, I could just see both parts of my personality coming out. One is like, I've surf waves that big at OB. I know I can do this. Right. Because it was small. And I'm just going to paddle over there and pick one off. And then the other part of me was like what I call the stupid obituary warning. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, let's see now. <laughs> Who's drowned at Mavericks? Right. What kind of he, shape were they in? He was a good man. Yeah. Right? It was, it was Loved like, by many. Yeah, it's like fat middle-aged guy drowns at Mavericks. Subheading. <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Oh, that voice in your head. Yeah, fortunately, that voice wins out. So. Yeah, it tends to. It tends to. So you um, you moved to OB from Texas. Were you um, a science guy growing up in Texas? Yeah. I, um, I always loved science and literature when I was a kid, you know, in high school. And I sort of had to choose, or I made myself choose in college. And so I decided to go into science because I could figure out more ways with that to pay the bills you know and we were pretty we weren't poor growing up by any stretch but we didn't have a ton of dough so it wasn't so clear to me that just kicking it and trying to be a writer was a good idea right so yeah i did that uh majored in chemistry and then uh sometime in my freshman or sophomore year of undergrad i took my first trip to california and that was just a life-changing experience. Yeah, you know, like it's we, so green and blue. It's so green and blue, and the waves are so good, and the girls are so pretty, and the food is nice. It was just like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> right. I got to get out of there. So as soon as I could figure out how to do it, I did it, which was, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school in chemistry because they, at least in those days, and I think it's probably still true, if you were a good grad student in a field like chemistry, you could get a stipend that would pay for everything. Mm. And so, you know, it was like kind of like having a job, only not a great job, but still a job that would pay me to live in various places. And so I chose my graduate school application list. I'm not kidding. I don't think I applied to anywhere that was more than five miles from the Pacific Ocean. So it was just up and down the coast. So Scripps, you know, Irvine, UCSD, UCLA, blah, 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 all the way up the coast. And I got in a bunch of places and then I chose UCLA because I liked the guy I was going to work for and off we went. Nice. He was also a surfer. That's cool. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, UCs in California that are in such beautiful locations. Right? I mean, UC Santa Barbara is insane. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, they really got the, the real estate locked down on a lot of those ones early on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> somebody, all, the, all the smart people knew where to set up. Yeah, somebody was thinking clearly in those days. Yeah. And uh, when you went to UCLA, did that um, spark your interest in antibiotics? It was the beginning of what I think has become my professional career. Um, what I actually did at UCLA was study... In a in a sort of a restrained way, uh, uh, the best way we could do it then. So this is the '80s, right? And people's ability to manipulate biological systems was still in its infancy. So what we did was we tried to understand certain things about how the immune system works by modeling them, by making small pieces of them and studying those pieces, which are more tractable. And the thing we were focused on then. Uh, could be thought of as, as what people now call um, the self-non-self problem, right? So your, your immune system 
you have all these white cells that are cruising around all the time and they're basically sentinels and they're just looking for anything that's out of whack. And the way they do that is they cruise around and they physically interrogate new cells. Any any cell that they find, they'll bump into it and they'll do a quick check. Is this self or non-self? Does this belong to Kyle or is this something new? Oh, this is something new. Well, what the hell is it? The usual response is if it's new, we're going to kill it. Right. So if it's a bacterium, if it's a virus, if it's actually a cancer cell and it looks really different on the outside, they'll kill it. And how do they kill it? They have all kinds of white cells have all kinds of cool mechanisms. But um, I think the easiest one to understand and the one I like the most is they just release bleach like they, you know, sometimes they'll excuse me. Sometimes they'll actually eat another cell. It depends on the size of it. That's called phagocytosis. Right. They'll just like engulf it and digest it. That happens to bacteria a lot, but bigger things uh, they'll kill by essentially injecting bleach into them, which is kind of cool. They generate all this, they do this cool chemistry inside them, and then they funnel it either into the other cell or on the outside of the cell and just kill it. Right. And how do you uh, conduct an experiment where you're isolating a, a certain part of the immune system? Yeah. So the way we did it was, uh, you know, comically simple because it was 30 years ago, right? I mean, I look back on it, it seemed very sophisticated at the time. But it was really simple. So what we would, what we were trying to understand is how much of that self, non-self interrogation that goes on all the time is simply shape related, right? So in other words, maybe your cells have certain signposts on the outside that identify you as you. And the white cells that are sniffing them out will have a way of Physically, you can think of the sign as a three-dimensional object, you know, kind of sort of feeling their way around the three-dimensional object and going, oh, no, that's us. Okay, cool. We're going to leave that cell alone. And then they go and they find some other cell that has a different sign. They're like, wait a minute, that's not us. So we wanted to know what are the characteristics of this three-dimensional sign that are so clearly recognized by your immune system that it makes a pretty important decision, right? Like if it screws up and starts killing cells in your body, that's bad. And that actually is the source of a lot of woe and disease like uh, arthritis. Is that, a, is that an example of an autoimmune disease? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's when your own immune system kind of loses its mind and can't tell self from non-self and attacks various things. So, so that's white blood cells killing useful cells in your body? Yeah, or, that's right. Like okay. M- MS, I'm pretty sure, uh, it's not my field, but I'm pretty sure MS is when your own white cells attack the sheath that surrounds your nerves. And then you, you know, your nerves quit working right. But it's always something like that. Right. Right. So we wanted to understand all of that. So we would just make little pieces that we thought mimicked these signs. You know, we knew that cells displayed uh, physical markers of who they are. And we would just make pieces that mimic that. And then we'd make pieces that looked in a, in a sort of molecular sense like a, like a baseball mitt. Right. And we just see, okay, do they bind? How tightly do they stick together? You know, how important is the shape of the thing that's going into the mitt? You know, how important is the size of it? Some of it's sort of intuitively clear, like if the mitt is not big enough, then nothing fits. But what's less intuitively clear is, you know, like a baseball mitt will catch a softball, a baseball, a golf ball, a marble, probably equally well, plus minus the webbing, right? Right. The immune system's not like that. Like if it's built to catch a baseball, It'll, you know, it'll like the baseball, it'll hate the softball, it won't deal with the marble, and it'll basically, when it, when I say hate, it'll just say, that's not us, we're going to kill it. Gotcha. Yeah. So when we're talking about people who have good immune systems, yeah. what does that really mean uh, in terms of this, their white cells' ability to kill or bleach um, cells that, that shouldn't be there? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'll tell you my view as a semi-lay person 
uh, informed by some science, right? So if you if you ask a proper immunologist this, you'd get a long answer. My short answer is you have probably 15, 20 discrete kinds of white blood cells that float around in your body at any time. So a healthy immune system to me is you've got all those cells and they're all doing kind of what they're supposed to be doing. So I can give you an example that pertains to where I think we're going to take the conversation eventually, which is uh, in people who are what's called neutropenic. That means they're missing one of those cell types that are neutrophils. And you can be neutropenic for lots of different reasons, but a very common one is you get chemotherapy and it wipes out that cell type. Well, people who are neutropenic are very prone to having bacterial infections because it turns out of the 20 white cells cruising around, the ones that are most important for killing bacteria are neutrophils. So okay. when I think when you say like you have a healthy immune system, it means that everything's tuned up and it's doing what it's supposed to be. Right. And then uh, when when we're talking about a, a bacteria that creates a staph infection, what do those cells look like? Yeah. So th- that's an interesting um, that's an interesting disparity. So. Uh, they're very small compared to a white blood cell, right? So compared to a neutrophil or a T cell, they're tiny little buggers. Um, if you look at them just, you know, absent that comparison to a mammalian cell, they're cool. Um, staph are little globule-shaped things, and actually to the naked eye, colonies of them have a kind of a yellowish-gold tint, and that's how they got their name. The most common one is Staph aureus. You know, if someone says you have a staph infection, almost always it's staph aureus. And the aureus is Latin for gold. Oh, wow. So, so it's it, the color of them. Yeah, it's the color of them to the visible eye. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And uh, when did you first become interested in specifically um, st- studying staph? Oh, that was actually, I think, uh, a few years into my professional career. So this is way after UCLA? Yeah, so I did UCLA, then I did a a stint up at Berkeley. That's how I wound up in the Bay Area. Uh, It was a postdoctoral fellowship, so it's a little bit like a residency for a doc. Once you're sure what you want to study, you kind of go and get deep into it. So I went deeper into those things that I had dabbled in in grad school. And at that point, the field was moving quickly so that manipulating pieces of the immune system, for example, became much easier in the early 90s than it was even in the late 80s. Was that why you got interested in it? Because it was this exciting kind of revolutionary time? Yeah, Yeah, it was just a cool time, and all these tools were available to do things that, you know, I had done in what, in retrospect, seems like a clownish way. You know, in graduate school, we thought we were so hot and sophisticated, and then three years later, it was like, why would you ever do that? You should do this, where you right. actually work with the real immune system. Right, but that's exciting science, right? It's when you're, really, con- you're constantly innovating. Constantly innovating, yeah. Okay, so, uh, well, actually, that's it. so here's a good story. Um, the way I became interested in antibiotics first was there was a guy named Chris Walsh, uh, who was then, I think he's, he's subsequently retired, but he was a professor, professor of biochemistry at Harvard, and he was at Harvard Med School. And he was, by reputation, and, and I've subsequently come to know him and befriend him, uh, I can verify this, was one of the smartest guys in the whole shoot and match, right? So, and, and notoriously didn't suffer fools. So Walsh was a guy you kind of wanted to know, but you did not want to say anything stupid in front of, right? So there's a, <laughs> a tension there, right? So anyway, Walsh turns up at this meeting I was attending one summer, and uh, it was a big scientific meeting, and there were a bunch of muckety-mucks. 
And Walsh gave this talk one afternoon, and I, I, you know, it's the kind of thing that leaves such a mark. Like I can remember where I was sitting in the auditorium. I know who was sitting next to me. I know, yeah, it was it was a remarkable talk. And what Chris was talking about was the emergence of a resistance element, a biochemical mechanism by which bacteria could become resistant to the last line of defense that killed Staph aureus. And it was this terrifying moment because everybody knew staph infections were awful. What I hadn't realized was that, you know, while I was in grad school and whatnot, one by one, staph had been acquiring or developing resistance to just about everything you could treat it with. And all that was left was this one sort of esoteric antibiotic that had been discovered in the 50s called vancomycin. Um, and vanc was this incredible antibiotic. It has, it has this remarkable mechanism, and you look at it and you go, there's no way they're ever going to figure that one out. We're safe with Vank, right? And so in Sachet's waltz, Walsh, um, one afternoon, I think it was like 1995 or 96, and Chris says in his own way, we're fucked. Right? <laughs> I mean, he would never say that. He, would, he gave this very art, you know, elegant, <laughs> articulate talk and blah, blah, blah. And I remember him saying, pay attention to this one hydrogen bond because this is the difference between life. And then he turned around and said, death. You know? and, <laughs> and so anyway, it was this whole mechanism. And I was like, wow, these bugs are really cool and clever and we're fucked. You know? <laughs> and I remember. And the other thing that struck me because I was still... I was still so early in my career, and I would always judge myself, like, do I, do I have the potential to ever be Walsh, right? And then I realized, probably not. Right. <laughs> but I leaned over to my friend who was sitting next to me, who was a young, he was a young assistant professor, I was new in biotech. And I said, Jesus, that's kind of intimidating. And he looked over and he said, hey, a lot of guys who are going to wind up in the Hall of Fame can't hit Roger Clemens. You just got to get in the box and take your cuts. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, Walsh is intimidating, but right. you don't have to be Walsh to be a good scientist. Isn't it? Uh, I run into this a lot uh, talking to journalists because yeah. they'll uh, be telling me about some horrifying like conflict that they went and covered and yes they very much care about and are are impacted by the conflict but a lot of times they go in based off of curiosity right sure. and it's this kind of like sure. oh, it's almost like weird sometimes for them to talk about how like i was just really curious about yeah. this horrible thing that was happening right yeah. Yeah. um where most people are just kind of like disgusted and move on like right. for you the staff right right was this thing that was curious uh, you you became curious about it because yeah. it's this um, brilliant and adaptable yeah. new disease. Well, right? and, and threatening, right? And threatening. I think that was for me. Um, so coming out of your academic training, you know, if you're if you've done reasonably well, you have a choice. You can go and be a professor, or you can work in industry. And uh, the expectation in general is, if you can be a professor, you're going to be a professor because that's just a little bit more, you know, elevated position. And I realized when I was nearing the end of my training that I didn't want to be a professor for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was that I felt like people who were working in biotech in particular had a set of uh, metrics that just made more sense to me. Like if, if you do your job well in biotech and someone gets the drug you've discovered, they get better. And right. it's pretty clear, like there's no argument about the importance of that, like the patient's alive or dead. 
And it was this very interesting, like, whoa, that it drew me. And I think it draws people in the same way that being a journalist, you know, there are journalists who want to write about the local city council, and then there are journalists who want to go to Rwanda and cover the Civil War. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's a feeling like, okay, I, make, I can make an impact. Yeah. And I can do that in my lifetime. And that could be really cool. Yeah, and and staff specifically is such a fast-acting disease. And when people get better from it, um, because I've had staff before, and I um, have never experienced my body begin to uh, lose a battle so quickly. Yeah. That's what's really uh, frightening about it is that, you know, I've had the experience where I'm down on a... um, a surf trip in Indonesia. I get yep. a little reef cut on my foot. Yep. Um, you know, I clean it, but maybe not as good. Then a couple of friends and I are going to go out for beers. And this is, this is a, something that happened to me and you know, we were all in sandals and had this cut on my foot and I was drinking a beer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it kind of hurts a little bit. Keep drinking beer, which was just providing a ton of sugar for it. And then sure. all of a sudden my foot is pulsing boom 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 and i can't fucking walk on it yeah that's classic that and and uh you said um in your ted talk that bacteria can double every four hours oh even faster even faster yeah if they're <clears throat> if they're happy and well fed which they are in your yeah, foot with a lot of bintang you know, being ingested bintang, <laughs> yeah. but lots of blood and oxygen yeah they can double every 30 minutes right so what started out for you is probably on some little you know, seed of reef plus a little bacteria, you know, after a while, if you think about it, so you're six, eight hours after the event there, you could have a full blown like colony of bacteria, which you probably did. And you're starting to feel it then for two reasons. One, it's getting, uh, it's pressuring the, the tissue around it. There's so much, they're trying to grow and they're running out of room. The second thing is your own body's like boogieing in there with white cells and trying to fight it. And then those guys that first arrive on scene, they're like the first responders, they'll send out signals to recruit other kinds of white cells. And some of those signals are, you know, what make you hurt, right? It's a signal to your body as a whole, like, hey, 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 things are Stop aren't dancing. Good. Stop yeah. dancing. Yeah, stop with the bintangs, dude. The focus on here. And then, you know, things like fever and all that, those are all biochemical responses to a generalized threat. Right. Which in your case was localized in the foot. Right, right. So a lot of surfers uh, run into staff um, because they get reef cuts. Um, Can you talk about chemically what's happening when you uh, cut your foot on a reef to when you're in the hospital? Yeah. So uh, let me start by telling you a brief anecdote from a, a uh, a mentor of mine, a guy who taught me a lot about staff, for example. Uh, his name's Sean Warren. He's a physician who is at uh, MGH back in Boston and teaches at Harvard Med. So a really smart guy, but also a surfer. And and I used to call him before surf trips and all that. And uh, he was kind of my travel doctor on the side. And he would always tell me, you know, like, yeah, if you're going to go get your doctor write your script for this, this, and this, based on where I was going, in the tropics, it would always include something to cover staff. And he's like, yeah, you can take Cipro if you want. If you're the kind of person that gets traveler's diarrhea, fine. You can take that, but it's not going to. But staff, don't mess around. And one day I asked him, I said, so what's the big deal? He said, look, here's the thing. Like, I, I'm in charge of infectious disease at MGH, so that can mean a lot of different things. If I get a call on a Monday morning from Dr. Smith down in the cancer wing, and he says, I think my patient has VRE, which is a different kind of bug, I tell Dr. Smith, yeah, I'll be there by Friday. And what I'm hoping is by Friday, he'll call me back and say it's resolved. If Dr. You know Jones from a different wing calls me and says, I think my patient has staph, 
then I'll be there by Monday at noon, right? Because the staff moves so fast and it's so lethal that you don't have days, you don't really have hours to screw around. So what's happening when you get a cut? Um, the first and most important thing, interestingly, is that your skin has been breached. And your skin and every all skin is actually a very complicated, it's its own organ, right? But it's, it's your first and probably most effective line of defense against things like bacterial infections because they're everywhere all the time and fungus and all this stuff. So you need a healthy, intact skin to keep most of that off of you and then your healthy immune system to clean up anybody that makes it past the barrier, right? What happens when you cut your foot on the reef, especially when I mean, reefs are prone to this because little pieces of microcoral break off and they'll contain, you know, 100,000 bacteria. And so it's different than just you cut and then some water that has bacteria in it gets in there. That's, you know, there's not many bacteria in water, but on a reef it can be super concentrated. So essentially you're seeding this bacterial infection beneath your skin, so it's already past the first line of defense. And you put it in a weird place where the white cells have a hard time. Like white cells will deal with a lot of things, but they don't know how to deal with coral. Coral's brand new. It's this superstructure that's only partly in the blood. And so they go and they nibble around the outside of it and they kill the bacteria they can. They go away. New bacteria come out of the middle of the coral. So you have this system where you've breached the main line of defense. Your secondary line of defense is doing its best, but it's up against a new challenge. Then things can get out of hand. Okay. And why is bacteria breeding <clears throat> inside the skin? What, oh. what's, what's causing this doubling to happen so quickly? Yeah, so they basically, so like right now, you and I each have a boatload, you know, unless you've just recently washed yourself with some intense antiseptic, you have a boatload of staff on your skin, and I do too. You actually have a whole ton of them in your nose, which is kind of goes back to your mom's thing, like don't pick your nose, right? Turns out you've got them all over. They're just commensal. They live on you. They do things. doesn't matter. What matters is if they get inside you, then they have access to um, blood, which is full of nutrients because you're doing a good job, you know, eating and digesting things. So you're essentially got them in a very warm place, which is where they like to be. And you're giving them lots of food and lots of oxygen. And that's, you know, when we go in the lab, we try and grow staff. We put them in flasks. We put them in this stuff, this kind of goop that contains all the food they want. And then we put them in a thing called an incubating shaker, which is a box that is heated to exactly body temperature, 37 degrees C, 98 degrees F, right? So precisely your body temperature, we're giving them all the food they want, and the reason we shake is so they have lots of oxygen. So you shake, you put it in this little container and it shakes the flask, and that aerates the solution. So in a sense, your foot becomes an incubator for the bacteria, and I can tell you from my own experience at the lab, it's a damn good way to grow a lot of bacteria fast. That's when they double every 30 minutes. Right. Um, and what do antibiotics do in response to that? So then I, I go into the doctor and I say, oh, my God, I'm limping. I have a staph infection. Right. Um, you will then pres per, uh, prescribe me antibiotics most likely. Right. Um, take me through the process of, of what's happening then when I take a, a round of antibiotics. Yeah, so... Well, I, let me ask you a question. Did in Indo, did you go to the doc? Um, I didn't. I actually had antibiotics, and mm -hmm. it was uh, the end of the trip, so mm -hmm. I was flying home right mm -hmm. around that time. Um, but on the plane flight home, it was. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It was. It was actually a while ago. It might have been actually that it was at the end of the trip. 
So I made it home and then went to the doctor, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. they prescribed me antibiotics. Yeah. Um, but since then, I do tr- I do now travel with antibiotics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and gosh, nothing like a plane flight and on a foot to make that yeah. shit just go bonkers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that throbbing you feel that's your own heartbeat, right? It's just all of a sudden all your nerves are pressed to the point that every heartbeat compresses it enough to trigger your nerves. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's a couple things that would happen first. There's the medical part, which is easy to understand, and then there's the biochemistry part, which will take a little time. The medical part's pretty simple. If the infection has gone to the point where there's pus, you know, like you can see it's red and there's some white stuff, that's the, kind of the focus of where you need to be. So most docs will go in and uh, drain that in some way, and you're just trying to get ahead of the curve there. You get rid of most of the bacteria that way. But you still got a ton of them that are left in the surrounding tissue. So you drain that, you know, put some antiseptic on it to make sure nothing's going in that new hole and seal it. Then you give the patient antibiotics. The antibiotics get in there, and you can think of them as teammates for your immune system, right? So their job <clears throat> is not necessarily to go in and kill every bacteria in your body that's hard and that's not usually what happens what they do is they go in and by screwing up in a unique way the bacterial machinery that's involved in cells living and dividing and doing all the things they want to do you go in there and you just tweak them a little bit and either stop their growth or kill them then your immune system can get caught up right so it's like this constant war your immune system's fighting and trying to eat them and and the bacteria are growing so fast they overwhelm your immune system the antibiotics get in there and they tip the balance of the war back in favor of you. Okay. Okay. So at a molecular level, what's really cool about antibiotics and what got me hooked when I saw Walsh's talk and what I was trying to do in grad school in a comical way was the antibiotics get in and screw up pieces of machinery inside a bacterial cell, but don't screw up the same machinery in your cell. And the way they do that is really interesting, but it breaks down into two general categories. The first and easiest is sometimes bacteria have biochemical machinery that mammalian cells, your cells, don't. And so if you can figure out, okay, you know, in bacteria, they, they to divide, they need to do this, and they have this protein in here that only they have. Well, that's a good target, as we would say in the, in the pharma world. That's a good target to aim for. You just want to get in there and hit that target, And you know you're pretty safe because there's no target like it in the host. The more interesting cases are where there's a target like it in the host, and there's a target, you know, there's similar targets in host and and bacteria. And then you just have to be more clever with the molecules you put in and do usually a lot more testing to figure things out. But the first antibiotics that came out, things like penicillin, they hit pieces of the bacteria that only bacteria have. And so they were viewed as, um, there was a guy a long time ago named Paul Ehrlich, who was a German chemist, and he's credited with coming up with the phrase, the magic bullet. And in Ehrlich's mind, what you wanted was something you could shoot at a patient who was infected, and the bullet would hit only the bacteria and leave the patient alone. So those first antibiotics really were kind of magic bullets because they were, they were aimed at targets that you don't have. So you could give as much penicillin as you want. You're not really going to affect the patient, but you will kill the bacteria. Gotcha. You were talking about a kind of lock and key metaphor, <clears throat> right? Where there's a there's a lock, or there's there's a key that will go directly into that yeah. pr- protein and work to um, destroy just that protein. That's right. That's yeah. correct. That's right. And that's a, that's another. I don't know who 
first coined that doesn't really matter. But yeah, that's a metaphor people use a lot to explain the action of drugs in general, but antibiotics in particular. And the idea is that, you know, somewhere on the machinery of the cell, whether the cell is a bacterium or a human, there's going to be a region that's particularly sensitive, and you think of it like a lock. And the, the drug you're giving is a key. And, and that's a, not a bad metaphor, really, because the drug must fit into a slot. And the more precisely it fits into that slot, the better, because then it doesn't fit so well into other slots, right? Gotcha. So you listen to that talk. Yeah. You got really excited about this um, line of work. You started um, focusing on it, you said, at Berkeley, correct? Yeah. That, that's where you're doing your fellowship? Yeah, right? a fellowship. Your fe- fellowship. And then when did, and, and it was this exciting thing where every three years you're innovating the way that you're studying these cells. Um, when did it, for you, really become this, like, holy shit, race against time thing? Was that during the talk that, that you got, that you, that you really got, like, look, this is something that could impact humankind on on a major level or is that at some point during your research that the um the gravity of all of this sunk in yeah it was it was a couple of years after the talk i think um and again you know it's one of these sort of luck things i mean you you go and do a job in the industry and you're kind of a when you're young scientist you're just assigned to work on something and i got assigned to a project that was to deal with staff and of course, I had Walsh's talk in the back of my mind, you know, like, well, yeah, this could be serious. But I think at first, the gravity of it first hit me when I started talking to people like my friend Shaw at MGH and other people who were frontline clinicians out in hospitals and realizing, whoa, they're losing patients to staff. You know, even with uh, at least one drug left, they're still losing patients to staff. And that's kind of crazy. Like I hadn't thought of anybody dying of a bacterial infection my whole adult life. You know, like antibiotics were invented in the forties. I was born in 63. That's just not what people die of. You die of other stuff. Right. Right. But the idea that there'd be a bacterial infection that you either couldn't treat or was so hard to treat people were dying was new. And it hit me. Oh yeah. Because we've taken antibiotics for granted for all this time. And without thinking about the fact that the bacteria are rapidly evolving resistance to them. Yeah. So it's not a good idea to take them for granted. It's like when you have a really good shirt and you go out to the barn and <laughs> it impresses all the ladies the first three times. And then like on the fourth or the fifth time, yeah. they're like, I've seen you wear that shirt I've before, Kyle. That yeah. yeah that... It's not going to get you laid tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> we got to go get a new shirt right. quickly. <laughs> we need That's right. <laughs> Let's back up here. We need a new shirt right now. Shit. Yeah, that's right. New pickup lines. No, exactly. And it's it's And I think for the clinic, Clinicians, in a weird way, that's that's how they know. Like the you know the clinician who's treating the patient, they know the molecular level stuff. It's not like it's not interesting. They just don't have time or equipment to sort that out. What they see is they put on this shirt, and they either get later, they don't. They give this patient this antibiotic. Their fever breaks, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, they go to the next one, and they kind of go through, you know, tears. But they get to the heavy hitting stuff, and if they're still not getting any satisfaction, then they're scared. Right. Right. Um, so, so you said that when you when you first got to that talk, one one point that I'm confused on is that you said that that uh, a lot of the the bugs had been developing resistance to these antibiotics, and that there was just this one left that was still working. Yeah. But um, the reason I'm confused is that I I know that there are still a number of antibiotics that are used. To, 
to, or I believe that there are different types of antibiotics to treat staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does how does that work if there was just one that was yeah. working? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And it's also a question that speaks to the amount of time that's passed since that talk. So that was late 90s, right? And we're 20 years on. So two things have happened. The first is that um, the type of resistant staff everyone was worried about then has really gone bonkers, right? And so now... <clears throat> That used to be something that was weird and you would find in a hospital and it was, you know, a little unusual. Now it's assumed if you have a staph infection, like if you roll into your urgent care center here next week and it looks like you have a staph infection, they will treat to cover for what's called MRSA, so methicillin-resistant staph aureus. They just assume that's what you've got. If you have a strain that's sensitive and they're still out there, you can switch to some older antibiotic. The reason you can do all that now is that there was a hell of a lot of activity in the 90s and the 2000s to discover new staph drugs. So we went from a situation which was only for a couple of years where we were down to one, and then we've clawed our way back up. There's like three or four now, including one that I worked on during that time. It's now on the market. Right. So so when people talk about MRSA staph, that means that they're assuming that it's going to be resistant to a number of antibiotics already. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And and you said uh, in your TED talk that it was something like in the in the 90s it was only MRSA was found in only like one or two states and uh, now it's found in almost all of them. Well, actually, um, I think in I think in that case I was referring to a new superbug. So MRSA is sort of it's everywhere now, and it was pretty widespread in the 90s. Although it was only in hospitals, now it's everywhere. It's like in the community. It's in the dirt outside. Right. Um. What's happened in the last 15 years has been the rise of a whole new class of superbugs uh, that are becoming resistant to everything. And there's some common themes here, actually, and given your sort of interest in environmental impacts, I'll tell you one of the themes that emerges as you study these things is um, humans have used in agriculture for a long time antibiotics as feed additives for cattle, for example. And it's understood that if you give the antibiotics, if you give cattle low levels of antibiotics, they grow better. And it's not really, to me anyway, so clear why that is. I mean, part of it is certainly they'll get less bacterial infections, but some of it is something else that people don't understand. But it's a cheap and easy way to grow, you know, to add 20% weight to your cow. Wow. Right? And what happens there is very predictable. You're using antibiotics willy-nilly yeah. on a ton scale. Taking the T-shirt out way too often. Taking the T-shirt out way too often, right? So then when that same T-shirt shows up when it's needed in a hospital and you're trying to woo the nurse, yeah. the nurse is just like not having not, it. Not only have they seen you wear the T-shirt, yeah. they've seen like 10 other guys exactly. wearing that T-shirt too. Yeah. Not having it, right? It's like a members-only jacket. Take that weak shit out of here, <laughs> right? That's, I got nothing for you here, pal. Right. Nothing. So, yeah, and, and what happened with bank, there's still this huge argument about where the bank resistance came from. So the Europeans will tell you that the Americans caused bank resistance by overusing the antibiotic in the clinic. Americans will tell you the Europeans caused it by overusing VANC in cattle feed. VANC is the antibiotic given to cattle feed. Well, yeah, and it's also, it was used in human clinical situation for years and years, right? It was the one that Walsh's talk was about, so VANC being vancomycin, sorry. Okay, Um, and then that's the one kind of gold, oh, that was the one. That was the one golden, okay, gotcha. That was it, and so... Anyway, so there's this big pissing match between the Europeans and and the U.S. about that, but that's sort of... 
that story's kind of settled. Like we have ways around that now. And so it's less, you know, staff is still a nasty bug, but what's freaking people out now are these so-called gram negatives. Um, so a different family of bacteria from staph. And it includes things like E. coli lives in your gut. And, you know, again, for decades, E. coli, it's funny, when this, when the gram-negative epidemic started, I was confused because I didn't really think of E. coli as a pathogen. And, and I was talking to an ID guy who was in his 60s or 70s. What's well, an ID? Sorry, infectious disease guy. And he just laughed at me. He said, that's just a sign of your youth. You know, like people used to die of E. coli all the time, and then we got XYZ drugs, and now they don't. But what happened is all those drugs that had worked so well for coli were overused in various ways, and they started losing ground in the 2000s. And now you have this whole new category of superbugs. And here we are. This is a direct analogy to the vancomycin thing in the 1990s. There was one antibiotic that was hanging on, and it was called colistin. And it's from, it was discovered in the 50s. And it's kind of a shitty drug. I mean, it works really well, but it's, it's harmful to the kidneys of the patients. So docs really didn't use it. And thus it maintained its potency. And so when they had to drag out colistin, you know, it was like dire straits. A patient's going to die. We're going to go with colistin, but they're going to live. And then... It's the old dusty t-shirt. It's just like you yeah. just go in deep in the, the closet. The one that your dad's like, here, son, put this, this one the, on. This is the no-brainer, <laughs> right? This, is, this looks kind of funky, it's like a, but it's, it's like going to work. It's like yeah. a corduroy jacket that totally. he that he want, totally. used There's in the 60s. It's a jacket with corduroy patches or something, right? Like this... You know, yeah, this isn't going to work, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's going to work. Okay, so now here's the thing that gets really super messed up. No, and nobody knew that. I didn't know this. You know, At this point, I had been in the antibiotics field for a long time, and I thought, like, I got everything under control. I know how this works. So it was one of these things where, like, well, at least there'll never be resistance to colistin because, A, people hardly use it, and, B, it's a weird mechanism, kind of like vancomycin, where you just go, I don't, I don't see how the bugs are going to figure this out. <laughs> Well, it turns out the Chinese have recently acquired a taste for beef, right? They've been mostly vegetarians for a long time, and now they're kind of getting middle-classed up. And so they're growing a lot of beef. Well, guess what their feed additive is? It's colistin. So they're putting out metric tons of colistin on all these you know, farms, and lo and behold, the first cases of colistin-resistant E. coli turn up in the clinic in Asia. Once the genie's out of the bottle, it's coming, right? So you can set your watch by it. If you see it in Singapore, it'll be a couple of years, but it'll get to North America. Who knows how, right? Traveling with some passenger. So colistin resistance was observed for the first time maybe maybe eight years ago. And now, you know, it's popping up in North America, and it's traveling with all kinds of other interesting resistance. And just it's a sort of smack your head moment like, Jesus, again, we did this, people, right? We had these beautiful drugs, and we overused them in various ways, and now we're in trouble. Whoa. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, so don't so don't get a gram-negative infection in Asia anytime soon. Trust me on this. All right. So um, to, to slow it down... Uh, a colistin antibiotic will go in. That's the the lock that can take out the protein of the the bacteria. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking about a superbug, that that bug has basically developed a protein that is resistant to, to colistin, so it yeah. bumps it in, it bumps into it, and it can't take it out. Yeah, that's where the that's where the lock and key metaphor is actually particularly useful. The most common way that bugs become resistant to antibiotics is they change the locks, 
Right. Right. So the key you're using from the old days just no longer fits. Gotcha. And that, it's very accurate almost at a molecular level. Right? Okay. They get, the bugs wind up, I mean, it's funny, you anthropomorphize all the time. It's a natural tendency. They're not thinking about anything. Yeah. Right? They're just mutating. And yeah. once in a while, a mutation pops up that gets them around some antibiotic because it changes that particular lock. Well, guess what? Those are the ones that live, and they live to have progeny, and the progeny mostly have that mutation, and off you go. Right, right, right. So um, do you recommend to people to um, not eat industrial beef because of the dangers of it? Well... I, if you put a period after beef, I would be with you, mm-hmm. right? So this is one of these things where I always wince. Like, I hear people say we shouldn't eat industrialized beef because of antibiotics, and I agree with that. But the reason's not what you think. I don't actually think that any trace levels of antibiotics in the beef are dangerous to you one way or another. What I think is tremendously dangerous to you is the fact that they were throwing tons of this stuff on the feedlot and breeding resistant bugs. And... Whether that whether those bugs are then traveling with the beef you're eating, that's dangerous, or whether they're just out in the environment and eventually they'll make their way back around to you, that's dangerous. Right. So it's not so much the traces of any antibiotic I worry about because yeah, antibiotics tend to be kind of safe. It's the fact they were there in the first place and they're breeding all these resistant bugs. I really wish people would quit doing that. And the way to make people people being producers of beef quit doing that is quit buying those products. So I'll tell you an optimistic story. Uh, just recently, McDonald's announced that they were no longer going to buy beef or chicken that had had antibiotics. And, I mean, dude, in terms of environmental activism, you know, whatever you think of McDonald's, they buy a shitload oh, of yeah. beef and chicken. So if they say they're quitting, then pretty much everybody who produces beef and chicken has to quit or they're screwed. Wow, that's amazing. Right? So, And that's, and, and that's years of activism actually caught by people like you. You know, I, I referenced this woman named Miriam McKenna, and it was a journalist in my TED Talk. She's been writing passionately and diligently about this issue for 20 years, right? Including for the last 10, she's really been focused on the impacts of agricultural use of antibiotics on negative clinical effects in humans. And I think it's just things are slow to happen. You wish they'd happen faster because right. it's so obvious. You look at that and go, ah, oh, that's stupid. They should quit. Right. But it takes consumer action, and enough consumers decide, mm, I'm going with the grass-raised stuff. Right. There, there is also, um, in you know, kind of a horrible but effective uh, way of storytelling where the antibiotic, I mean, where staph infections are so uh, fast-acting that, you know, a mother can lose her child in an evening, right? Where a yeah. lot of these environmental issues are so slow-acting, like... Uh, coral reef bleaching yeah. or something like that it's very diff- it's very difficult to get people to act on it because we in, we in our uh, tiny slivers of time that we are on this planet for really only look at things that are in time relationship to us right which is why it's very it's difficult for people to wrap their head around climate change or yeah. slow moving yeah. um environmental impacts yeah, absolutely uh, so you can get the story you know like if there you see it happen on our time scale it's easier for people to to freak out about it so um rightly so so um there's been a lot of um of journalism around this thankfully um you have talked about the lack of financial incentive to develop new antibiotics because they're not something that people take continuously like they might, um, you know, uh, 
uh, antidepressant yeah, or, or blood, something like that, right? You, you like give that, people yeah. a round of antibiotics, um, and for 10 days, and then hopefully they'll never have to take it again, you know, or, or you know, at least maybe a decade or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, let's talk about how that works, um, from a pharmaceutical standpoint and how it wraps into the FDA and Congress and how these new drugs will come out. Yeah, that's a really interesting line of discussion. Um, the point you made, I think you summarized very well, which is antibiotics are so effective, they cure the disease you're treating, and thus you don't need them for very long. So if you just if you just were sitting around one day in your pharma company and you said, should we make another antibiotic where we can sell 10 pills you know, per patient per decade? Or should we make another cholesterol med-lowering drug which we can sell a pill a day for the rest of their lives? It's pretty clear economically what you'd want to do. And yet, cholesterol drugs don't cure you. I mean, they help for sure, but they don't cure you. Antibiotics cure you, and it's life-threatening. And so there's all these weird incentives that develop in... Uh, full disclosure, I mean, I'm, I work in the farm industry, but I'm kind of, I'm a little bit of a lefty in that regard. Like, I don't think the free market works all that well in pharma for some things, and this is one of them, right? Like, partly because medicine is not a discretionary purchase. It's not like if I raise the, raise the price on my meds, you're going to quit taking antibiotics. Like, you're going to die if you don't. Right. Right? So, but that's a whole different discussion. Let's just say the market's broken in that regard. And there are things that are being done to try and fix it. So one of the things that's being done that I'm optimistic about is that um, Congress, that's a sentence you won't hear very often, but I am optimistic about <laughs> Congress and opt- yeah. an optimism. What an optimism, this? yeah. I think Congress like is... dry re- water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think Congress has realized that this is a problem, and it's one of the few things they can do something about where it's really not heavily politicized, right? Like who could be against, you know curing sick babies. I mean, to your point, this makes for easy TV. Um, So what they're trying to do is get the FDA, and they've largely succeeded in this, to get the FDA to treat drugs like antibiotics differently and evaluate them more quickly and have somewhat uh, less stringent standards than they would for a drug that's going to be taken the rest of your life. And I think that's useful. We owe a lot of that thinking actually to the community of, uh, to two communities that were prevalent in the 90s and did good activist work in this. One was the HIV community, and the other was the breast cancer community. And they both had a very similar argument. They went about it slightly differently, but similar arguments at similar times, which was they went to the FDA and they said, you guys cannot take the amount of time and require the amount of data for an HIV med or a breast cancer med that you do for a blood pressure med, because these two things are going to kill us and kill us quickly. And we're willing to take the risk, right? Blood pressure med eh, might add a year to your life down the road, but it's not. If you don't take it, you're not going to die, right? There should be very stringent standards exactly. on what you release into the market. <clears throat> Absolutely. And so those two groups, you know, groups like ACT UP in the HIV community, and I can't remember. There were a couple of big breast cancer groups, but I remember you probably remember the photos. They were chaining themselves to the outside of the FDA, like they would literally, you know, chain their bodies up and chain the doors at the FDA and just say, "No, you have to change the way you do things." The FDA is limited in what it can do because it's a political body, really. But Congress then passed some laws and said, "Okay, we'll do this." So now, twenty years later, they're tapping into that same mindset, which is, "Oh, right, we can't treat every drug the same way." 
antibiotics have to be moved along more quickly. And then the other thing they're doing, which is clever, and I hope it works, uh, they're trying to get to go in and fix parts of the free market that are a little bit broken, right? So what we talked about, about the pricing and all that, you can't make as much money on something you sell for 10 days as 10 years. And so what they're trying to do is they're going in and they're saying, well, yeah, we have ways of dealing with that in other markets. So there's there's a, a, a law that was passed maybe 25 years ago called the Orphan Drug Act. And it was meant to basically inspire people to make drugs for rare diseases. And it worked. So the, the, the problem with the rare disease is kind of similar in that you may, maybe the patient will take the, the drug for the rest of their lives, but there's only ten thousand patients. Right. So you can't make. It's just you can't re, you can't recoup your investment. It's not like boner sense. pills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone exactly everyone wants to get hard. Everybody's got everybody's got a vested interest in that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not like that at all. Right. So that worked pretty well. So what they're basically doing now is trying to make antibiotics fall into that general category. They're not calling them morphine drugs, but it's the same concept. And what that allows you to do is price them differently. So we can price them more competitively in a way that makes it uh, possible for company, a small company, say, working in the field to actually get their money back. And that ultimately is the only way it's going to work, right? If people can't make money, uh, then they're not going to work on it, you know, just given that we work in a for-profit system. Right. So... And, uh, does, and walk me through the process because... Um, a lot of people do just stop with the, yeah, there are lobbyists and it's corrupt and I don't know really how it works, but like <laughs> it's corrupt, man, you yeah, know? And, yeah. and, uh, I, I would like you to, to walk me through that process of how a, a drug will get lobbied, how it will be either approved or denied, how it will fall into the hands of then practitioners. Um, because it, um, yeah, I'm still confused on it. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. Because you 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 said that uh, that it's like when a when a new drug is proposed to the FDA, it's something like thirty thousand pages of data that they will typically have to go through. Yeah. To decide whether or not this is um, going to be released out onto the market. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So I will start with the disclaimer that my industry, pharmaceuticals, doesn't do itself any favors with some of the things we do with our lobbying groups, right? So we're quite often, I, it, it's a weird feeling because fundamentally I'm very proud of what I do for a living. I think it's a noble aspiration to go into a lab every day and think that you can make a drug that's going to help someone. I like that. It's easy to go to work. On the tail end of that, you know, you get into these lobbyists who want to control various things about pricing that I think are probably not good. So let's divorce that. Let's say there's some bad stuff going on, but fundamentally the endeavor, I think, is worthwhile and noble. Um, then I would also say there's a lot of traction to be had by people in my industry bad-mouthing the FDA. You know, oh, those sons of bitches, you know, they're blah, 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 blah. Yeah, maybe, but... Again, I think most people who go to work for the FDA, they're certainly not working for the salary. Those people aren't paid a lot of money. I think they care about what they're doing. They're trying to do something useful. So let's, if you take that as your starting point, people in pharma are trying to do something helpful, and people at the FDA are trying to do something helpful, and they have different jobs that clash. That's the backdrop we'll take. So the pharma guys, <clears throat> we start a project against, you know, let's say we're going to make a new antibiotic. You and I start a company tomorrow 
maybe we'll have something that's ready for testing in people in three or four years, if we're good. The first thing that happens is what's called a phase one study. And what that amounts to is you take um, healthy volunteers, and that's always that's always <laughs> shorthand for college, grad, college grad, kids, grad students, college kids, right? right. Who are just so just so desperate for money, they'll test a brand new drug on their body for a six pack of beer. Is kind of what it amounts to, right? So you tell them all you can, but it's always healthy college age men, and the the men thing is important because you you never want to expose someone who's of child a woman who's of childbearing age to anything until you're really sure about a lot of other things that could go wrong. And typically you don't know those things early on. So you, you test it in men. What you're looking for in men is the obvious stuff. Do they tolerate it well? Do they get rashes? Do they not like the feeling? Do they vomit? Blah, blah, blah. A bunch of very simple stuff. And then there's more complicated stuff. You draw their blood. And you can tell a lot by looking at a patient's blood. And you say, well, did it affect anything to do with their kidney function or their liver function? Again, very basic stuff. And the FDA here is doing job one for them, and really it's kind of their most important job, which is safety. So, you know, a new therapy is meant to help people, and that's good, but step one is it can't harm anybody in the process. So most of the hoops that we in pharma have to jump through have to do with safety. You get to efficacy later. Phase two is where you first blend them. So, so you're taking uh, healthy college students. If it's, let's say you're testing a new antibiotic, yeah. these aren't college students who have any kind of infection. No, that's an important distinction. Yeah, right. they have nothing as okay. far as you know. You just want to see in a person who's otherwise healthy, what does this drug do? Um, and most often it's nothing. I mean, once in a while, like if, if you're testing a new opioid, it's kind of, you know, you're going to see some effects, right? <laughs> right? But a new antibiotic, if the person's healthy, is going to do nothing. And that's what you want to see. You want to make sure that it doesn't impact a healthy person. Phase two, in a, in a phase one trial, just to put things in perspective, would take about five million bucks and it would involve, you know, at most 25 people. Um, you write up all that data and you say, okay, you go to the agency and you say, all right, this is what it looked like. We're going to go to phase two. Phase two, we're going to take a small number of patients, between 50 and 100 people who have the disease, and we're going to treat them. And it's small because you still are going very cautiously on the safety front, right? Now you're looking at the safety in patients, and patients fundamentally are different than healthy people. Their immune systems are compromised. All kinds of stuff's going on, and you, don't, you can't guarantee that healthy people being fine means patients will be fine. So job one in the in the phase two trial is always safety. Is it a safe drug? But then you've, these are patients, so if it's working, you ought to see some signs that it is working, right? And you don't have enough patients typically in a phase two to say anything definitively because you need the statistical power. There's certain you know mathematical analyses that go into this, and if you don't have enough patients, you can't say for sure, aha, it works. But you can say, yeah, it looks like it is working, and there's a trend to efficacy. And that's really all you need out of phase two. So you write that up, and that's you know, another 10, 20 million bucks. And then you go to phase three. And you're delivering all of this to the FDA as that's you're right. going through these trials. That's exactly right. So you, you write, at each stage, there's kind of a pause, and it goes to the FDA. And the FDA is a more or less neutral arbiter in this, and they look at the data, and they look at it carefully. And you, you as the sponsor of the drug, no matter how... Um, you know, balanced you feel you are, you, you're excited. You know, I can tell you from my own experience, you're excited, like, wow, this could work. We've worked so long on this. This could happen. Let's get it into patients. And their job is, oh, okay, let me just look carefully at the data without you yelling in my ear about how great it is. Right. And let me see if I agree. So assuming they agree, then you can go to phase three. And phase three is where all the money and time is spent. 
um, for an antibiotic, which is one of the simplest drugs to get convincing data on, you might be looking at about 800 to 1,000 people who would enroll in the phase three trial. Um, typically, half of them will get the new drug and half of them will get whatever the standard of care is, whatever is the best available other thing that's already on the market, and you're comparing them head to head. Typically, you would do that in a blinded fashion, which means neither the investigator nor the patient knows which drug the patient's been given until after the fact. Right, the double blinds. Yep, that's okay. the, it's the double blinding thing. So I, I had a um, Dr. Jim Fadiman on uh, this podcast. He's uh, doing a lot of work with um, psilocybin mushrooms, which are now in phase three trials um, being for, used for, for, PTSD? For, for PTSD and yeah. depression. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, the double blind is always this um, interesting thing thing where you know no one really knows but when it comes to psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms everyone's just caught looking like an idiot after know. the first 20 minutes because yeah, yeah. everyone knows you kind of know yeah, right like, <laughs> yeah like i can see the first part of it being fine like okay you're both going to eat these assy sort of things <laughs> right. it's going to taste like hell but then half of you're going to feel really different in 20 minutes right? yeah <laughs> yeah i can see that right okay so then the phase three trials happens where you're uh, testing roughly 800 to 1,000 people uh, who who have um, certain symptoms that you're trying to treat, correct? Right. So right. these are people who, with staph infections, right. and you're going in. Um, and are these typically people who are have tried other drugs and, are, and those are not working, so they're willing to go into something that's um, still in testing phases? Well, in antibiotics... Because like, if I had a staph infection yeah. and, were, and you're like, hey, well, come over here to try this new thing, I'd be like, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a perfectly reasonable response. Um, and that is something of a challenge in an antibiotic world because, no, typically they won't have failed anything else. The, the, that's the one of the interesting things about staph, for example, is if you fail the course of therapy, you're going to die. So there's you don't get that opportunity. Um, but... To your point, in cancer, that's always the case, right? So the FDA, they know, <clears throat> because cancer is a slower-moving disease, that there's what there's a principle they call clinical, excuse me, clinical equipoise. The the fundamental concept there is um, is really important, and I think it sort of it may help people who are listening to to come to more peace with what the FDA and pharma do, in the sense that. Um, most of us, I'd say, you know, the vast majority of people on both sides of that feel a very uh, great sense of um, humility and responsibility about giving a human a, a brand new drug, right? Because you think you know what's going to happen, but fundamentally it's an experiment. And people on all sides of that take that very seriously. And there's a, there's a risk-benefit judgment that goes into every clinical trial. So... In your example of that we were talking about a minute ago with cancer, the risk benefit is pretty clearly always in the side of the patient needs to have everything that is known to work before they try the new thing. And that just makes sense, right? Because cancer is slow enough moving that if you fail a course of chemotherapy, you have a couple of months to rally from it and try something new. With antibiotics, it shifts a little bit because you only have a few hours to get it right. So anyway, the, the nuances of how they do that are, are interesting, but um, suffice, right. to, suffice to say that, you know, by the time you're – the the uh, there's a third body I should mention here, actually, that, that is involved in this discussion, and that is um, there are a group of clinicians at any given major hospital where you might be conducting a trial who are uh, part of what's called the Institutional Review Board, the IRB, 
And that always will include, for example, an ethicist and a statistician and some other people who know how to look at data and also know how to judge. Is it really ethical? You know, like, so that's why you can't, uh, for example, test an antibiotic on a patient in phase one. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, does the FDA, do people from the FDA get all of their salaries mm. from taxpayers or is there lobbying from pharmaceutical companies uh, that directly funds the FDA? Mm, that's a great question. So, yeah, they get all their money from uh, the government. Okay. What happens uh, these days, and this has probably been true for 25 years now, uh, and interestingly, it's probably, I don't know this for sure, but I bet you this is true, it's probably an unintentional consequence of what I talked about earlier where people effectively lobbied for the more rapid review of certain kinds of drugs. What's come up of, of late is there's a fee that, dr that drug companies have to pay to have the FDA review a drug. And it in my mind, this is my opinion, it just comes from underfunding the FDA. So they're chronically budget strapped. So what it's meant to be is like a success tax on the industry. If you're doing well enough that you're going to submit a whole data package to the FDA, then you have to pay what's called a PDUFA fee, a prescription drug user fee. Blah, I don't know what it is. I don't even know what the A right, is. Right, to make sure that if you're going to throw something at the wall, you're <clears throat> expecting it to stick. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's both a judge of how serious you are, but it's also a recognition that if you're going to give these guys 30,000 pages of data, it's going to take extra people to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're always underfunded. So, But it's not like the Padufa fee goes to hire people just to do your thing. It just goes into the FDA coffers, right? So okay. it's not, <clears throat> yeah. I, on the list of people that, <laughs> I, I, the FDA people that I've met are so scrupulously clean. Like they won't let you, you can talk to them, so here's an example. If you have a drug that's under review at the FDA, you can't talk to them, period, end of story. There are windows that open up and mechanisms by which you can talk to them, but it involves a formal submission of a letter, and then they'll say, yes, we can speak to you under these circumstances at this time, and they'll record the conversation. You can't just talk to them in a bar. If you don't have a drug under review, you can talk to them in a bar, and I have, but you can't so much as buy them a beer. Right, like they're really super rigorous about. No, no, I can't let you pay for that. I'm like it's a beer, you know, or a burger or whatever. Nah, you know, I have to account for all my meals, and you, you especially from farm, I can't pay for it. Right. Well, there was a big heyday in the '90s, right, where a lot of, um, well, I guess it was more tor uh, directed towards uh, practitioners being getting favors yes. from phar pharmaceutical companies. Yes, and that's right? what it, that's what I'm saying. Like. There are times when our industry doesn't do itself a service because you do things that, uh, anyway, a long time ago I had an advisor who told me this, but if you want to judge, uh, if you need an internal check as to whether what you're doing is right or wrong, ask yourself how comfortable you'd be reading about what you're about to do in the New York Times, right? They call it the New York Times test. Yeah. It never fails. And so a lot of things were done in the 90s that would have failed the New York Times test splendidly, right? So it was pretty common practice for, uh, <clears throat> well, like I can tell you, in in my world, you know, at some point when you're developing a drug in the antibiotic space, you want to get most of the people who really understand antibiotics in a room together and you want to show them all the data. So by the time we started doing that, what you could do in that room in terms of the food, what you could pay for, could you pay for their flights, could you pay for their hotel, all of that was changing. It used to be you could fly them to Bermuda 
just get them in a five-star hotel and pay for golf, and they wouldn't really have to do anything except show up. Uh, when I was doing the, it... But you're not talking... Are you talking about the FDA right now, or are you talking no, about... I'm talking about practitioners. Practitioners, okay. right, yeah. That you're trying to get, you know, in some cases... So you, that you're basically trying to get your drug into their Rolodex of drugs that they can right. give uh, to patients, right? That's right, so, yeah. That's so, right. so they're like... Uh, they know the, about the, it, the right? way that I understand it is that a lot of times there would be uh, presentations from pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, they would invite, invite all the doctors. There would be amazing food. They would kind of cater to right. them and saying, you know, and, and we have this new uh, antidepressant that we think would be great for you to have in your Rolodex and, you know, potential. We're not going to force you to give it, but we're just going to put it out there for you. That's right. right. And then that kind of became the heyday of um, this this world where there were a lot of drugs, right, getting getting pushed upon practitioners um, in, an, in an unethical way. Yeah, correct. Okay. And and I have been, I won't name the company, but I have been at a company where they got slapped for that. You know, they were, it was pretty skeevy. When it came out, it was the kind of thing you just go, ooh, that's skeevy. Right, right. right. Okay, having said that, the FDA and Congress have really put the hammer down on that. So the days of kind of like Weehaw Bermuda golf vacations for people you're trying to get to write scripts for your boner drug, those are gone. And what you can give people now is so limited, it's kind of a joke. Like, <laughs> I was at a big meeting one time, and it used to be every exhibitor at the meeting would set up a big booth, you know, and and the booth would be like stocked with free beer and and the gift for you stopping by, if you were Dr. Tierman, oh, Dr. Tierman, welcome, you know, sign up for information on whatever, you know, drug amycin, and we'll give you a CD player back in when there were CDs, right? Like, you know, we'll give you a iPod, we'll give you a whatever. And yeah, so sure, I'll take some information on your drug, right? And I'll take an iPod with me. Those days are over. Wow. So it's put... <laughs> It's put people in a bind. The people in my industry who are responsible for selling things are all pissed off. It's like, nah, that's a pretty easy, way, pretty easy way to sell, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Smith will never forget this vacation in Bermuda. Oh, my God. So now you got to be, you know, now you're right. kind of back to like, I don't know. It's it's, it's just pushing and shoving, right? Right, I mean, right. It's pushing and shoving. Fundamentally, you to sell a drug, which is a couple steps beyond where we are, but it's a good place to go. To sell a drug, you have to... You know, one of two things has to be true. It either unambiguously has to be better than everything else. Then it kind of sells itself. That turns out for a variety of reasons to be really hard to prove. You can do it, but it's most often done in cancer. Um, and that's a setting. And you can also do it in antibiotics because, it, you know, old drugs start to fail, right? Boner drugs, heart meds, all that stuff. You know, you're usually looking around the edges. This is better for the following reasons. It has lower incidence of this, which right. rare, which rarely happens, right? It doesn't make your mouth dry. Or SSRIs or something like that, right? Where there's that there's a stuff. myriad of different ones that you That's can take. exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So if you're a sales rep and you're responsible for getting people to buy your SSRI, the tools you have at your disposal are limited right. at this point. But it's basically trying to limit side effects. Yeah. Right. Like that. That's a big, big selling point. It's, it's like, oh, well, this one is less likely to make you kill yourself or, or whatever. whatever it yeah. is. That yeah. Whatever. I mean, and, and yeah, so it's kind of back to we're sort of back to an era where the reps just have to go in and try and get a doctor's attention at a time when doctors are really stressed. Right. They're under pressure to see more people. So they can't just dick around with rep ABC who comes by like it has to be some purpose. 
And then, you know, what's the rep got? Well, the rep's got, have you ever seen a, a drug label? No. Uh, what do you mean? Next time you get a prescription filled, okay. <clears throat> um, they, the pharmacist will throw in, it's this little tiny origami thing. It's about the size of a pack of gum, and it's all folded up. And if you actually unfold it, it'll make a thing that's the size of a like a surf poster, right? And in 10-point font all over this thing is everything that's known about the drug, and that's called the label. And the label will have on it, first and foremost, like what's called dosage and administration. So how are you supposed to give it? You know, it's taken orally. It's yeah. this many meg per day. <laughs> no one, but all no the, one reads past that paragraph. Nobody even reads that. They just read on the label of the script. Like, okay, take this Twice pill, daily right? for a week. Okay, <clears throat> yeah. it'll make me feel better. But it's all in there as if the average patient's going to read it or even the average doctor. And the, so the goal of the rep is to get the doctor to see enough of the label that they believe that this new SSRI is different. It's hard, right? It's very hard. And right. the reps are limited. I'll tell you this. Despite all the goofy shit you see on TV with these direct-to-consumer ads, what pharma companies can and cannot say about their drugs that are under FDA regulation is incredibly tightly regulated. And all of it has to do with the label. Like, somebody who's skilled in this can go back and look at a print ad for a drug, and they can tell you what the label says by the font of various things that are said in the print ad. Whoa. Yeah, like the, the biggest font always has to be the first thing in the label. Right. And the, the, you know, so it's like... Gotcha. So it drives us crazy. So, yeah, pharma, anywhere there's a lot of money, there's going to be people pushing the envelope and stuff like that. And there's been corruption, and we've been, you know, guilty of lots of things. But we work hard to get medicine we believe works into the hands of patients and doctors. And the thing that drives me bonkers is like when I go down the aisle at New Leaf and I see all this, you know, crap that's like herbal, schwingding, and they can say anything they want about that because it's herbal. It's not FDA approved. It's not FDA. The FDA has nothing to say about that. So if they tell you that, you but know. But you have to say like this is this uh, uh, homeopath is not meant to treat or cure this disease. That's exactly right. right. Or that's any the, disease. Well, if you look at that label, every little homeopathic thing will say, no, this is not meant to treat or cure any disease. Okay. And then it'll say, the, the language on that's kind of interesting, right? It'll say it's used for blah, 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 right? right. Upset stomach. Anyway, so. But, okay, but you can't make those claims. You can't make those claims. And the, the C word actually is the most important word there. So in our world, a claim is that's what you're working for, right? If you get a claim in the label of a drug, that means the FDA has accepted what is written there. So if I say this drug is indicated, which means it's used for the treatment of staph infections, including MRSA, man, that one sentence has so much time, money, and love put into it. And it's a sense of great, like I have, I have worked on a drug that has that label. I can tell you it's a sense of great pride because you've convinced a bunch of really skeptical people over in Bethesda, Maryland to look at 30,000 pages of data. And they've said, yeah, thumbs up. It works for what you say it works for, and it's not likely to kill the patient. Right. <laughs> it's so hard to do. It's right, right. Um, I, I want to uh, move past the, the F FDA, Congress, pharmaceutical world, but I'm just going to ask um, one or two more questions yeah. to try and understand the ecosystem. Um, so you're saying that when you're going through phase one trials, phase two trials, phase three trials, that's millions and millions of dollars yeah. spent. Uh, where does that money come from? That's, uh, it depends on the size of the company. So if you are a company that has products, what you're doing is taking a certain amount of the revenue that comes in from, you know, a product that's already on the market and reinvesting it into discovering new drugs. And so, and that's a lot of money, you know, typically to get a drug approved now, it's 
maybe 10 years of clinical study, including FDA reviews, and somewhere between 500 million and a billion dollars. Right, and this is where you say said that sometimes the the free market falls apart because a company is more financially in, uh, more financially inclined to do research on a new drug that a patient is going to have to take for their entire lives right. rather than an antibiotic where they're going to have to take one round for a week. That's that, right. Is that correct? That's and exactly that, that's, right. Yeah, because that's where fundamentally, the incentive. Yeah, that's right. Because fundamentally, the cost of getting that drug on the market, whether it's an antibiotic or an antidepressant doesn't change a whole lot it's, right you know maybe a little cheaper for an antibiotic but it's still going to be a but the other. margins are going to be a lot bigger for an, an well, antidepressant the ongoing returns will right be bigger. yeah yeah that's right wow that's exactly right. okay okay um and is it so is it is the money for research that typically typically comes directly from the pharmaceutical company yeah and then for companies like ours so you know I'm running what's your a, company called again well i'm running a company now that's called dice molecules okay and I've pretty much been at companies like that most of my career. Um, for companies like those that don't have products, you're essentially taking out a series of loans. And they almost, most of the money comes from venture capitalists or people like that who are used to making very risky bets. So you go to the VCs, as they're called, and you pitch, right? We were talking about this earlier. And you pitch and you pitch and you pitch. And finally, someone says, Oh, I like that. I'm going to give you some money. And off we go. And so you just raise money and raise money and raise money. And at some point, you have to get enough progress um, that the money becomes cheaper. And right. So it's, wow, that's really interesting. So you're pitching to people who aren't scientists, but could some be are, some, some are, some aren't, yeah. but but it could be a a a, a rich VC yeah. who wants to create the new um, the new best antibiotic, either because they think that there's a big market for that or that they. What you want to save the world or do something, right? All of that, all yeah. of that, right? All of that. Could... There's there's variations on that theme. So the VCs themselves tend to be professional investors, and they have a certain way of doing things, but they're not necessarily scientists. Many of them are, maybe most of them. Uh, then you have like rich individuals who are referred to as angel investors, and they can span the gamut. So you know, I just lost my daughter to breast cancer. I'm going to sink a hundred million of my money. Um, you know, Gates has given almost all of his money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and their mission is pretty broad but pretty important, right? They want to improve human health. And it's interesting, you think, you know, with $50 billion, you think you get a lot of stuff done, but figuring out what to do is really super important. And a lot of what they've done that's made a huge difference has nothing to do with new medicine. It has to do with things like clean water and mosquito nets and stoves that don't kill people from carbon monoxide poisoning. It's all really important. Yeah. So anyway, um, so you can get money from lots of sources, but fundamentally the game here, if you're a small company, the game is you need to get the drug far enough along that a bigger company thinks it's worth the bet and they'll buy it. And they just have to buy it for more money than you've spent that so far so that you can give some money back to your investors. Right. What does a typical pitch sound like? Hmm. For a drug, a typical pitch would be... um, Okay. One so, of your one of yours. Get like take me into the room. Oh, because that, that seems like a big, uh, big moment, like yeah, big, yeah, big day. If you're trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. get millions of dollars yeah. to continue your research, yeah, you that's one of those like vomit in the toilet beforehand <laughs> moments. It's funny the first time, first <laughs> one of the, one of those M M&M and M moments, yeah. looking at yourself in the mirror. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. you're the man. You're, you're the man. You can do this. Yeah. 
Yeah, the first few times you do it, it is pretty, uh, it's pretty queasy feeling, but then you kind of get used to it. It's funny, the first time we raised money where I was the point person on the pitch, I definitely had that feeling going in like, wait, I'm going to go in and ask these knuckleheads for $10 million and they might give it to me? Have they lost their fucking minds? <laughs> like, what are they thinking, right? What am I thinking? Um, yeah, so the, a standard pitch. So I'll tell you, the, the pitch for our company now is, is too atypical to be interesting. A standard pitch for the company I used to work at would be, look, we have, uh, you start them out by saying, you know, antibiotic resistance is a big problem. And about half the time they'll say, yeah, we know that, skip a little bit. And that's good. If they know stuff, that's actually helpful. If they don't, you just take them through the problem. And then you tell them how your drug is going to address these things. And then typically you'll have a section that could be at the front or at the end. You'll have a section on the team. And the team's really super important because these guys essentially are just going to give you a big pot of cash. And you could, in principle, just go off to Vegas and spend it on hookers and blow, right? Like, <laughs> So they got to have some notion. God, the 90s were great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they got to have some notion that you know what you're doing and you're going to spend this money well. Because they'll, right. they'll sit on the board and they'll look at how you're spending it. But fundamentally... You know, if you don't know what you're doing in some important ways, you can fritter it away even without, you know, embezzling, right? I mean, right. you can just waste it on stupid science. So they look at the team and they want to see people who have, you know, put a drug in the clinic or taken a drug to market or something like that and have some business experience. And a lot of it's just gut feel. And the last thing you'll do in a pitch is you'll have a few slides that say, okay, with this $10 million, here's what we're going to do. And here's why it makes sense to invest now. So if you're the investor, I'll tell you, we're going to raise $10 million uh, at a price that'll cost you a buck a share. And we're going to spend this $10 million doing a phase one human clinical trial. And at the end of this, the company's going to be worth two bucks a share. So we're going to sell stock again then to fund the, the phase two trial, but you're already, at least on paper, doubling your money, right? And that's what they want to see. They need to see some path forward where their money gets bigger and bigger as it goes so that they can make this long-term risky bet to you. Okay, gotcha. Um, regarding uh, pragmatic solutions for people who do get staff, because I'm mm -hmm. guessing there are some people listening who are just like, yeah, yeah, okay, just tell me what to do on my next surf trip. I didn't need to get a whole run-through of the FDA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. You're, along, point, you're yeah. along for my ride. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, if you're in the mental-wise, you're not thinking about the <laughs> You're <FDA>. like, shit. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm a six-hour boat ride, yeah, even my, from Padang my, Padang. My foot is swelling, and Kyle just keeps going into <laughs> regulations. Damn it. <laughs> Okay, so first things first. Most boat captains or, or camp operators, you know, if you're on a surf trip, will have antibiotics that are useful. <clears throat> um, but even before that, what I would say is don't treat any, especially a reef cut, but any cut in the tropics, treat it seriously. Wash it very carefully and thoroughly with soap and water and use a lot of water. Because remember, part of what you're trying to do is, you know, kill the bacteria. That's what the soap does. But a big chunk of what you're trying to do is get rid of any chunks of reef and shit that might be stuck under your skin because that's going to cause you a lot of trouble. So that's just good old-fashioned hand washing is what it amounts to. Um, you've been on enough trips, you know, there's a hazing ritual that could possibly be of use. It's always fun where people have to squeeze a lime on your reef cut. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hurts like hell. Oh, I'm, they, not, they, I'm not convinced they, it does they, anything. They love it when you when you come back to shore and you show them a cut. Yeah. All the guys go, They're all psyched. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good news, we're boys. Gonna, we're going to get to see Kyle cry. We're going to get to see Kyle cry. We may not have margaritas tonight, but, man, we're going to have fun. Yeah. Right? We'll just do shots. Exactly. Yeah, so... 
which is highly recommended if you do get a reef you cut a and reef your cut. friends are going to put li- yes. lime on it. Yes, I don't encourage youngsters to drink, but in that case, yes. Yes. <laughs> if you're going to if you're going to get lime on it, oh my god. So anyway, and then uh, the the sort of high tech solution for lime, which again most camp operators and boat captains will have, is uh, peroxide. Peroxide just kicks the living shit. It's it's like a bottle full of white blood cell extract, right? You're bleaching the shit out of these bugs, and almost nothing lives through that. Staff doesn't live through that. So I would say the most important thing is just take that cut seriously, clean it effectively, and then try not to freak out about it the rest of the trip. If it's serious enough to require stitches, again, most of the camp operators will do that, and they'll layer in antibiotic salve before they do it. And then you're fine. Then you're back on an equal footing because your skin's going to start healing, blah, blah, blah. There are signs, but they're never subtle with staff. Like if you haven't gotten it all, your foot will hurt like hell. Yeah, it happens very quickly. In a period of hours. Yeah, and one of the ways, like when people are serious, when you roll into the ER with a gnarly staph infection, the first thing the doc will do is take a black Sharpie and draw a line around it, you know, because you can clearly see where the red is. And if the antibiotic is working, within a period of hours, the the red will have shrunk away from the line. If it's not working, the red will have crossed the line, right? So that's how fast it goes. So you can do the same thing on a surf trip. Right. Pay attention to where it is, and if it's not getting better, you know it. Right. My issue has always been that um, I'll cut myself, but there's no way I'm staying out of the water for a long period of time. You don't so need that, to. Yeah, but then what will happen is that the cut will get cratered out. Would yeah. you say that the recommendation is just every time you get back in the water, every time you get back on land, you clean it out just as well every time? That's like, what like will, you, will you put hydrogen peroxide on multiple days? Yeah. And just keep it going, then you keep it bandaged, and then but then let it out for air at certain points as yeah, well? Yeah, definitely let it out for air. Okay. I mean, and this is just me kind of freelancing. This is wearing my surfer hat, not like I'm not an MD, right? But what's worked for me, and I think there's some underpinning of biochemistry in it and molecular, and uh, microbiology is, yeah, don't freak out. Like, just go back in the water. As long as you've gotten the solid bits of reef and stuff out, then, you know, swooshing it around the water is just going to keep it clean after a fashion and then clean it when you come in and let it breathe. It'll heal. Right. And um, regarding using uh, certain antiseptics, uh, my understanding is that it can be dangerous to use certain things like neosporin or use anything that isn't anti or that is potentially an antibiotic that could damage that lock and key oh. mechanism. Is that uh, is that true? I've not heard that. I mean, okay. I, I'll tell you what I would do uh, without turning this into a recommendation. Sure. But you know, if I had neosporin, I would probably put it on, but. I, you know, but you don't always need it. Like your body, you can, your body can heal, but it's about yeah. keeping it very clean. Yeah, soap uh, and water is really like your best friend. Soap and hot water. Right. Everything you can do after that is good, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't freak out if you have any is right. fine. If you don't, fine. What about antibacterial soap? Does that worry you at all? People who are consistently using things like antibacterial soap. Yeah, it worries me a lot actually because the the antibiotic agent that's in all that is called triclosan, and it's not. Um, Triclosan is not in human clinical use, so I don't so much worry about breeding resistance, although I can guarantee you we are using all that. But there's just a part of me that's a little queasy. It's almost like a, it's almost like a philosophy, actually, Kyle. It's like, look, right now if I swabbed your skin, this is a fun experiment to do with kids, and I used to do it at my kids' elementary school. I'd bring in some Petri dishes that were sterile, and I would, <laughs> I would make them put their hand on one Petri dish before they washed it and put their hand on another one after they washed it. And we just let them grow for a couple, two, three days, right? And you can see on the unwashed hand, you've got a metric ton of bacteria. And on the washed hand, it's not like it's totally sterile, but there's a lot less. 
the point is right now you and I have a shit ton of bacteria on us so freaking out about bacteria that might exist on your cutting board or your skin and using soap and all that I think is a waste of time and energy if you have a healthy immune system and your skin is intact you're good you're basically good like wash your wash your hands I mean fine nothing wrong with that but use soap and water that's what MDs use Right. right And there are um, foods that are that in our daily lives are either growing healthy bacteria for us or non healthy bacteria. For example, like if I have an infection and then I start drinking beer, that's going to make the infection grow more rapidly. Right. Because there's there are sugars in it, which is that at all. I've heard this theory. Well, I've heard this. I mean, our diet has to impact the efficacy of antibiotics. Correct. Well, it can, but not 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 so much in that way. So I don't know for sure. I mean, I've heard that theory about both antibiotics and cancer, or bacteria and cancer, and I don't. Mm, I don't know if I believe. It. I mean, I just haven't seen enough data. But I can tell you for sure, if you're taking oral antibiotics, you need to be careful what you eat because they can either impede or accelerate the absorbance of the drug. So there's stuff like that that'll matter. But honestly, uh, I would say you need to. You know, if you have an infection like you did in, where were you? In Indonesia. Yeah. So you have an infection, you know it. It's not subtle. Yeah. The the most important thing I think to do is take care of yourself. Like treat the infection for sure, right? And get, you know, clean it and do whatever. And you have to take antibiotics because you don't want to dick around with that. But really keeping yourself healthy, making sure you're, you know, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the discussion. What's a healthy immune system? Well, it's kind of part of a healthy body. If you feel like you've had enough food and rest, your right. immune system's probably good. Right. What do you do? You have any um, insight on the efficacy of turmeric? I don't actually. I you know, so turmeric and and things like that. Uh, you could tell me almost anything, and I would believe it at some level. Like I'm just a person, and people in India and South Asia have been using these things for thousands of years. Some of them probably work. To prove it at the level that you need to prove it at the FDA, I haven't seen that data. Gotcha. Right? So I would never poo-poo. It's it's kind of like my general grumpiness about the um, the holistic or the homeopathic aisle at, at New Leaf. Like, I wouldn't say none of that works, right? I just wouldn't know how to pick which ones do. Right. There can be an element of credulity. Yeah. And then the, the other thing I always tell people is uh, uh, <laughs> I was at a party one time and, and this woman was asking me, when people find out you're a scientist, that can go a lot of ways, right? But sometimes it goes this way, which is, well, what do you think about this and this? Right. And she was asking me about Reiki healing. And I said, well... I don't believe it, uh, but if it works for you, it probably is working because I'm a big believer in the placebo effect, right? In the mind-body connection and, you know, your healthy immune system or not healthy. Are you stressed? Are you rested? So if laying on a table and have some dude fan you with his hands, that makes you feel better. It's working kind of by definition. Do I think he's moving your energy around? No, I think that's total horseshit. And for that reason, it'll never work for me. Right. Some dude's waving his hands over my back. I'm just thinking this is bullshit. Right. So I think there's a kind of a there's a kind of an element of, you know, like the stuff in the newly file that probably works for a lot of people because they feel like they're getting better mm-hmm. and they will. Right. Especially for things that are hard to define and for which modern medicine is still not that great. So you mentioned SSRIs earlier. They're the mother of all tough trials to run because they have such a high placebo effect. It turns out people who are depressed feel less depressed if there's a doctor taking care of them. And it doesn't really matter whether they're getting a sugar pill or a new SSRI. Right. 
Yeah, their their right. cortisol levels will go down just because they exactly. think they're getting they something. Think they're getting care. Yeah. They're being you know, and and I think some of it's really simple, basic human stuff like touch and care and all that. So, but I always tell people, you know, like. I got no truck with you going through the newly file if you're depressed, if your stomach's upset. Blah, blah, blah. If you have cancer or a bacterial infection, go see a doctor. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the big issues that we have today is doctors over-prescribing antibiotics. Yes. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Okay. Um, and they, how, would, they would too. And how, how did that come to be? And that, what, is, is that this, this kind of for-profit thing where, where a doctor will want to prescribe you something if, if you say, oh, I'm, I, I'm sick, right? There are a lot of cases of them saying, okay, well, here's uh, a 10-day a um, dose of antibiotic, even though you probably could get over this without it. Um, and that's then become a big issue because then if you really get a bad disease, it's ineffective the next time. Correct. That's very well said, and the only the only wrinkle I would put on what you said is uh, the doctors don't receive compensation by number of scripts or type of script they give, so there's not really a financial incentive with one exception, and that's cancer, and that's a whole that's a very different story. But for antibiotics and any other thing, well, what, wait, but why does sorry to interrupt you, but wh why then would there be more research put on a drug that someone would want to take, someone would would need to take for the rest of their lives oh, if there was no financial compensation? Not for the physician. There's finance, There's plenty of financial compensation for the guy who makes the drug. Gotcha. Yeah. So they they're they're tied up. Their fates are tied up with whether physicians do write those scripts. But it's not like by writing a script for. Pfizer's drug, Pfizer's going to send you a little check. That's just not how it works. So if I then have to pay for um, an, a new antibiotic, is that money going, d does the physician basically pay for it wholesale and then mark up the price? Is that how the the process works of me then paying it? Or does that money go directly to the pharmaceutical company? Um, I'm just trying to uh, no, no, understand yeah, no, how no, the profits no, 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 yeah, work. I just need to, you're basically right. I just need to correct one thing, which is that the physician with very few exceptions, is not in the middle of that. The pharmacist is. And so what happens is the guy at CVS has to order all these drugs, and he orders them wholesale, and then he charges you retail, although, keep in mind, you almost never pay for your drugs. You pay five bucks, right? The insurance company pays. You know, so the whole system is very complicated. But the one guy who's not really in it financially is the physician. So they write the script. You go to the drugstore. The druggist, you know, they get a cut. Pfizer gets a cut, whoever, um, but the physician doesn't have really a strong financial incentive to do anything. The reason right. antibiotics are overprescribed is twofold. One is noble and interesting, and the other is human and also interesting, right? So let's start with the human one. The human one is, uh, so if you talk to any ER doc, they will tell you, this is kind of a, a secret, but I'm going to tell you. There's a phrase that- It's just us here. It's, it's okay. just us, yeah. <laughs> They say that, that one of my friends a long time ago said there's he calls them gomers, right? So it stands for get out of my ER. So it's people who turn up in the ER with some bullshit that they should either not see any doctor for or definitely not go to the ER for, but whatever they're hypochondriac, they, you know, oh. So with the gomers, you want them out of your ER, right? And sometimes they're not going to leave until you write a prescription for something. And very often, it's it's parents who have a kid with like an ear infection. And so I can tell you this I do know. 
at least half the ear infections. So the technical term is otitis media. You know, your kid's got a red ear and it hurts like hell and they're miserable and that means you're miserable. So you bring them in, they've got otitis media. The doc looks at it and he says, in his mind or her mind, she says, shit, it's otitis media. 50% of this is viral, which means if I give this kid an antibiotic, it's not going to help him at all, ever. The rest of it's bacterial, so an antibiotic probably will help a little bit, but P.S., it's going to resolve on its own in three days. If I give an antibiotic, it'll resolve in two days. So you're, you can either explain all that to the parent and then give this noble speech about, you know, by not giving your child an antibiotic, we're saving them for more serious infections, and then listen to the parent go cr- freaking bozo crazy, or you can just write them a script and get them the hell out of your ER. And so a lot of that happens. That's the human, like, just conflict avoidance, right? You, you know right. in your heart of hearts it's very it's going to do very little if it does anything. It's not going to harm the kid. Get him out of here. Right, and from a patient's side, you don't want anyone to tell you, uh, you're being a hypochondriac, go home and get some rest. You, no. You're paying for it, so you want to feel like you're getting you a, get bo- a box of pills yeah. out of the, the person in the white Absolutely. coat. Absolutely, and if it's your kid whose ear hurts, you don't want to hear a bunch of bullshit about epidemiology and, you know, like you just want your kid to feel better right so there's that Uh, but then there's the more interesting scenario which basically comes down to and this would be more in a setting like say an ICU right so a patient is in for surgery and they get a post-surgical wound infection most of the time that's going to be staph and that's a very serious situation so you got a patient who's already very ill whatever they were in for surgery you know their immune system is compromised and now they've got a staph infection you are the treating clinician. You know that there's a pretty good chance if you give you know, antibiotic A, patient's going to be fine. And it, by giving antibiotic A, you're saving antibiotic B for those really rare cases where you got a super resistant bug. The right thing to do for society is give your patient A. The right thing to do for your patient might very well be to give him B, right? Because you don't want to screw this up. And so for your patient in that moment, the doctor-patient relationship is, I need to save this guy, and I'll worry about the next guy when he turns up. So I'm going to give him the heaviest freaking hammer I can to just make sure he doesn't check out because of a staph infection. And so in big wave surfing, uh, pretty much everyone wears vests now, these, yeah. these flotation vests where you can pull a cord and it inflates a canister and helps you get to the surface much more quickly. Yeah. And... Um, it's very poo-pooed to pull your vest unless you're in a very unless you're in a, a dire situation, right, right? Right. The basically most people say, look, look, you should be able to train so that you don't need to pull your vest for a two-wave hold down. Yeah. But if you feel that you're gonna pass out, pull that fucking vest, right? Right. right. It's so much easier said than done because if you get pushed down on a big wave and you have you're you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm probably fine right now. Yeah. I'm not out of breath, but that was the first wave in a set, and there's probably going to be another one coming right now. Right, right. The noble part of you is saying, I'm going to swim to the surface. I can I can pull I can it to this. it, and the other part of you is like, fuck this. There's a cord right here. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's exactly right. What are we saving here? Fifty-two cents worth of CO2. Right. Like my fate, you know, my honor. Like I'll sacrifice that just to get up. Yeah, you're in the bowl at Mavericks. You're feeling very alone. Yeah. yeah. Now I get it. I, I actually asked. Uh, Dorian was in town for the Mavericks thing, and he was staying at Hawks Place, right? And I asked Shane. I said, 
So, you know, the whole vest thing, there's got to be some code of honor there. You know, like, when do you pull it? And he's like, when do I pull it? As soon as I hit the fucking water. <laughs> he's just like, you're at Jaws or you're at Mavericks. He's like, I don't care what people think. I want to come up. Right. Know, like quickly. Right. That's which it. Which does pose a problem because you get a lot of yahoos in the water who oh, yeah. haven't done any kind of training and yeah. think that this magic vest is going to save them, yeah. which I can say it actually doesn't because you can pull a vest and if you're still low and the and you're in the part of the bowl where it's sucking you down it's still going to be sucking you down yeah but Mm. it does help right yeah i'm sure it does i've never worn one but i can tell you if i had one there are times i would have pulled it in double over it surf because i'm a candy (laughs) ass if i thought i was being held down the mavs bowl i'd pull both right so that's antibiotic b right there that's antibiotic b right you just but again it's a it's a noble thing for that physician in that moment right so it's different than somebody trying to get somebody you know get a parent out of their hair it's this guy's looking at a life or death situation and he or she knows it and she's got to decide she's smart enough to know if i use b somewhere down the road b's going to lose effectiveness yeah but right now you know mr smith is you know like on the brink of death i'm not going to let him die right so. And, and yeah, and I mean that—that's also a cultural thing too. We live very much in the moment. For I'm hurt right now. I yes. want something to make me feel better. Yeah. Um, we're constantly pleasure seeking and avoiding any type of suffering, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm sure that that has a big, big yeah. thing to do with it too. For sure. Um, and when people are getting a treatment of antibiotics, should they be taking probiotics as well, or is that an after? Yeah, I don't. An I, after thing. I. I so uh, be careful what I say here because I right. really don't know that field well. I'll tell you what I think I know, but mm, you know, be careful. So, so when you take oral antibiotics, right? There, there can be pretty indiscriminate some of them, especially like Cipro, and you have a lot of at any given time in your body, you actually have more bacterial cells than your own cells, right? They're small and you have a lot of them. And most of them are living in the gut. Some are on your skin. The ones in the gut, for the most part, are good neighbors, right? Like, you know, they do stuff for you you can't do for yourself. They help you digest food, blah, blah, blah. So it's a, it's a symbiotic right. relationship. Right, and having, having a healthy gut biome is a really important part really of, important of being part. able to absorb nutrients, uh, being able to fight off disease, all that kind of stuff, which is why a lot of people are, are um, rave about having healthy gut bacteria yep. drinking kombucha probiotics all that, all that yep. kind of stuff yeah okay. exactly and and th- so i can tell you i know enough about like the microbiome now to tell you uh i really believe that's important a and b i don't think anybody really understands it quite well so, which leads me to my thing if you take an oral antibiotic you're going to wipe out a whole lot of gut flora you weren't trying to hit so getting them back in the saddle um with a probiotic could make some sense. And it's definitely going to prevent the overgrowth of other stuff that you don't want to overgrow. So the mother of all problems there is this bug called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. And if you get a C. diff overgrowth following a Cipro thing, you're going to be a miserable son of a bitch. So, yeah, probiotics seem fine to me. I, again, I'm not a doc, though, so. Right. Okay. Um, but you raise an interesting point there, and I know we've got to wrap up here, um, but this whole thing of, like, going back to the surfing like being prepared for the situation you're in right and not counting on things to to bet you know not counting on extraordinary measures to bail you out i think that's just good advice for people when they think about antibiotics and stuff like if you're maintaining a healthy lifestyle and getting enough rest and you know you don't have open sores you shouldn't not much of your mental energy should be spent on antibiotics and 
you know, staff and stuff like that. You'll know it if it happens. If it's not happening, just forget about it. Um, there are lots of people worried about all this other stuff, you know, epidemiology of right. resistant bugs. So. If, if, if there was a, an anim- and yeah, I know we got to wrap up here soon. If we, if, uh, if there was, um, a, a travel kit and would you, so would you recommend surfers to travel with a specific type of antibiotic? In case shit hits the fan, um, what I would say, or is that something they should consult a? Yeah, physician I would say they about? should consult a physician. Yeah. yeah, consult a consult a physician who is at least knowledgeable about tropical meds. Mm-hmm. Tell them where you're going, and then they will very often recommend to you, you know, an antibiotic that you can take orally that'll deal with this or that. And if your main concern is staff, which I would be concerned about, yeah, then they're going to want you to. There's one or there's probably two or three things they'll recommend and I wouldn't want to recommend any of them because I'm not a doc. Right. But they will and you should take them. Yeah. But don't bust out that t-shirt too often. Don't bust that. <laughs> yeah. Save that t-shirt, man. You got to have some traction. Yeah. yeah. So did Hawk, did, you guys, I forgot. I listened to the whole podcast but I can't remember. Did Hawk tell you about our trip to Tahiti? No, I don't think so. Oh, dude, that was a really epic trip. It was quite good. Well, next time you talk to him, you have to ask him because he's, so, you know, he's a pretty modest guy, right? So he won't, Oh, he's got a lot of stories, too. We only dug partway into the treasure chest. Yeah, well, next time we go surfing with him, ask him about his sesh at Chopu. It's not the kind of thing he would, you know, just spill out, but he's got a lot to talk about there. Easy. I love it. Right on, man. Well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. Hey, before you take off, please take one minute and give my podcast a rating on iTunes. It's so simple. I'm going to show you exactly how to do it right now. Go to your search button. Click in the Kyle Tierman Show. Even if you're already on it right now, it's going to take you to a new page. You click that button. It's going to take you to a page that says details, reviews, related. Click reviews. Give it a few stars. It helps other people find the show. Got some great episodes coming for you in the weeks ahead. I sat down with Amy Baldwin, the sex educator, for a round two, which was hilarious. As always, give me feedback on the podcast. I'm making it for you. So go to my website, kyle.surf, and I always enjoy uh, praise or constructive feedback. Seriously, it helps the show become better. And with that, I'm going to leave you with a song from Jerry Johnson called My Queen. You can check it out on my website underneath Kevin's bio. Get outside, get in the ocean, give someone a high five, maybe even a wet kiss. See you guys soon. Thanks for listening.